1 Samuel 25, this chapter, chapter 25, is a great uh, sort of, uh, chapter 24, chapter 25, I think a really great couplet in the Bible to show the reality of the balance of really the spiritual life when it's lived out as a man of God, as a woman of God, that there are times when we can have great triumphs in the Lord and we walk in his victory and we have mountaintop experiences and we yield to the Lord's power and we obey him and we do what's right uh, and, and at the same time there can be other occasions where boy we just can bottom out really quick uh, well, I think wasn't it wide world of sports years ago that used to be the advertisement the thrill of victory and then the agony of defeat and you know so there's this great triumph and then that wasn't the next scene like a guy tumbling down the mountain you know just, just an absolute uh, blowout falling and, and that's really a lot of times what the spiritual life is like in a lot of ways and I'm not saying we should be up one down up one day down the next kind of a thing but there are times where uh, even those of us who love the Lord David was a man after God's own heart and yet we see that David David had flaws. Uh, he had chinks in his armor. There were weaknesses uh, that he wrestled with. And the Bible is not uh, ever seeking to hide uh, the realities of those kind of things uh, in the characters and the scripture that are set before us. The Bible is a very honest book. It reveals the flaws of the most godly men and women, that they were just men and women at best. And here we see that with David again. And I say it's a good couplet because there's a real contrast here that happens where in chapter 24, David does really great. And now here in chapter 25, in the same area, predominantly the area of, of anger uh, and taking matters into his own hands, he, he just he flies all the way to the other end of the spectrum and just totally bottoms out uh, in this experience. If you remember chapter 24, just for sake of context and refresher, why I say it's a good couplet, these two chapters are together. David had just had a tremendous victory in chapter 24, really against his toughest enemy. And David's toughest enemy, as we said, is not really Saul. Uh, Saul was a problem in his life. Saul was his perpetual enemy. I mean, if anybody uh, ever experienced someone giving him a hard time, David certainly would win the Academy Award for that kind of a thing. I mean, Saul hassled him. Saul tried to assassinate him at least three times directly, throwing a spear at him uh, when he was there in Saul's presence. Saul has been chasing him. He's been searching him out, making him live like a, a fugitive and an exile and just making David's life miserable, stripping from David everything that was good uh, and comfortable in his life. And so David here has had this tremendous victory but it's not necessarily over Saul we saw that victory had was actually over himself because he actually overcame his own desires his own probably very natural inclinations his own anger his own desire to probably want to take matters into his own hands to resolve the problem with Saul he had to take revenge which almost would seem somewhat you could almost seem I mean if anybody had justification for kind of taking revenge on someone you would think that David might be able to rationalize that as an excuse remember it tells us that Saul came into an area where David and his men were hiding in a particular cave and it says that Saul went in uh, to attend to his needs so he goes in without 
bodyguards. Again, when somebody goes into a cave in the ancient culture to attend to their needs in the same way today, you would go into the restroom. You don't take company with you. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States. You don't want your security detail with you on those occasions. So he's totally vulnerable. He's all by himself. He's in a cave. He's in the most vulnerable condition a human being can possibly be in. And he enters right into the cave where David and his men are at. And they say, David, this is what we've been waiting for. God delivered him into your hands. This is the day that that you're to get rid of your enemy. And, And they were encouraging David, remember, to go over and just one swipe of the sword just take Saul out. And really, that would have been to David's advantage. It would have been to all of his men's advantage. All the problems would have come to an end. The hassles, the struggles, they were weary and worn out with what Saul was subjecting them to. I mean, he was making everyone in the nation's life miserable. And David would then just all the more, it would seem, be able to assume the throne and the men who were with him would be able to be his new military and so forth. So there's David. He has this opportunity. He's got Saul really kind of on a silver platter right in front of him. And probably everything in his humanity would have been compelling him. David, you, this is just self-defense. I mean, this guy's tried to assassinate you. This is just military. Just take him out, execute your enemy. He's tried to execute you. Uh, this is just common self-defense and it seemed that the circumstances indicated maybe he should do that but David being sensitive to his conscience had that sense in his heart that it was not the right thing to do that it was not his prerogative to take matters into his own hands that Saul was the Lord's anointed that God gave him that position and so therefore it was God's responsibility to ultimately remove him from that position. So David was not going to take matters into his own hands. He wasn't going to take revenge, though he probably, like any of us, would desire to have done that. And he overcomes his feelings. And remember, he just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and he lets him go free and then goes out and announces to Saul as he holds up the piece of cloth, look, look, I could have killed you, but I chose to refrain. So please don't believe the lies that I'm trying to do this or I'm, and the lies that Saul was believing about David. And he proves to, to Saul that his life was right in his own hands. And, and yet David refrained from his anger and the hurt and the offense he felt within. And he overcomes his feelings. He resists his anger from ruling him and controlling him. And he refrains from taking matters into his own hand. Now, David does that in the most, you could say, difficult situation where he's got a long-term history of stress and problems. If there would ever been a time you'd expect David to snap, it would be in that situation with Saul where he would say, I just can't take no more. And he just goes road rage on the guy and just takes him out. That was the hardest issue, like the biggest matter. And he, he makes it and he overcomes victoriously. And the very peculiar thing is yet now we're going to see in chapter 25 in the smallest issue, in the most minute, petty thing, David completely snaps, overreacts in his anger and is ready not only to murder someone, but actually to murder an entire household full of people as well and the males in his house as the result of not being able to control his anger and it's just a good reminder to us i said that all of god's people we have the capacity to bottom out and fail at any given moment at any given moment and yesterday's victories and yesterday's triumphs and our track record of doing really well listen is no assurance nor is it any guarantee 
that I will have success and victory in the next spiritual challenge or temptation that comes into my life. This is why it's important we stay filled with the Spirit. We stay close to the Lord because the Bible even warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 to, when we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. Uh, and here we see David, as I said, uh, struggling with this very thing. Thankfully, God always tries to caution and restrain us when we're heading off the cliff and kind of talk us off the ledge. And that's what we see God do graciously for David here. But we see this contrast now, as I said, to this great victory over his anger. Now he just does the opposite. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 25. It says, Samuel, the prophet, we haven't heard of him for a while. Uh, he finally has now come to the end of his life. The Bible records that he died. And all the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. Again, he was a great prophet in Israel's history, a very godly man. He brought great spiritual help and guidance to the people. So they now assemble together. They're grieving over Samuel's death. They bury him there at his home in Ramah. And David, it says, then arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So again, David moves he goes to a new territory again, moving around these different wilderness areas in the area of Judea. Verse 2 then tells us, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. So he lived in Maon. His workplace where he ran his business was in Carmel. Now that's not Mount Carmel up in the, the north. This is a reference to an area, Carmel and Maon, which would be down in the southern area of Israel, the area of Judea, not too far from Hebron. And we're told regarding this man, first of all, verse 2, that he was very rich. He wasn't just rich. The Bible says he was very rich. Uh, the emphasis being purposeful, and we can see how rich he was. We're told in verse 2, he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, if in that culture, if you had a few sheep and a few goats... Uh, and you were in possession of that as far as a herd uh, or a flock, that, that you were doing pretty well if you had a few sheep and a, and a few goats. This man, the Bible records, has 3,000 sheep in his flock and 1,000 goats, 4,000 animals. I mean, that, that's quite an, an enterprise being described there. This is a very wealthy man. The Bible wants us to know that. He has excess. He's very prosperous. And it tells us, verse 2, that he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the time of sheep shearing was basically like, we could say, it was kind of like harvest time for shepherds. You know, harvest time when you would bring in the crop and have harvest time when you were a farmer working your fields was the time of celebration. That was when you brought in all your profits, when you made your money. So that was, you know, you would celebrate. Typically, these were festive times where you would have feasts and you would have parties and celebrations. And usually because it's when you had a sense of how much you had prospered and profited. It was times of generosity where you would invite people to celebrate with you. You would disperse gifts and compensation to your workers so the time of shearing of the sheep was in a similar way it was an occasion where uh, you were reaping the profits from your labor of tending your flocks and herds where you would shear the wool for the money you would make it was a festive occasion they would be celebrating there would be great feasting going on people invited to the feast the workers everyone who was involved helping you uh, with your flocks and so forth were blessed and compensated they were invited and cared for and quite honestly, given what we know of the text here in 1 Samuel 25, 
likely David and his men probably should have been invited to this sheep shearing time with Nabal, as we're going to see that's what his name is here, and all of his other herdsmen and those who were helping him care for these flocks. Because we'll see David and his men played an integral part in helping them as they took care of their sheep throughout the season, which allowed them to have such a large amount of sheep and not have loss of animals because David and his men were providing kind of security detail for them when they were out in the fields. But there's no reference here to David and his men being invited, which they probably should have been. Verse 3 goes on to tell us that the man's name was Nabal, which interestingly enough, the Hebrew literally means fool, and uh, he has a very fitting name, we'll see, as we go on here. I don't know if his parents gave him that as a given name. I don't think you would look at your baby and say, well, what do you think? Take a look. Well, fool? I mean, I, I, mean, you know, I, I would kind of find it hard to believe that they gave it because of the meaning of the name. It could be that this was sort of a name that was attributed to him, uh, ultimately because of the way he lived out his life. We can't be certain, but the bottom line is his name is very fitting for the way he ends up conducting himself. His identity is much like what his name actually means in the Hebrew. And this man was married. It says the name of his wife was Abigail. And in the Hebrew, the word Abigail means my father's joy or joy of the father. And so he has this wife and look at the incredible contrast between these two individuals that were married. It says she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. So Abigail, this great example of a woman in the Bible, specifically we're told two things, that not only was she physically beautiful, she was an attractive woman. The Bible, When the Bible says someone was very beautiful, uh, as it does here, that indicates that they were an extremely attractive person. So she had great physical beauty, but more than that, she had character. Uh, and she had a, a, a nature and, and a temperament that was really very helpful and wise as she was a woman of good understanding. She was a discerning woman. She, we're going to see she was able to give great counsel. She handled matters well, managed things very wisely. We're also going to see that she was quite a spiritual woman and a very godly woman, which ultimately is something that becomes a helpful thing to spare a catastrophe and to assist David with good and wise counsel in this very chapter. So here's this woman, Abigail, spiritual, beautiful, good understanding, but look who she's married to, Nabal, the fool. This man was harsh and evil in his doings and of the house of Caleb. So she's married this godly woman, good understanding, sweet, beautiful woman. And she's married to this man who is basically like a barbaric, harsh, callous individual who's just completely evil. And we see he's filled with pride. He's filled with foolishness and selfishness in the way that he conducts himself. He's a greedy individual. And I don't know about you, but you read something like that in the Bible and you can't help but to say, if you're anything like me, you read verse 3 and you think, how in the world did those two get together? You're thinking like, how does a Nabal get an Abigail? I mean, how, how does that happen? Well, we can't be certain because the Bible doesn't tell us. One thing we should remember is that in this day, it was a lot more common that marriages were arranged. So it's possible that from a very early age, 
that this was an arranged marriage when they were two young people and they were arranged to be married together and uh, obviously Nabal just continued to deteriorate and digress over time and became the man that he was and Abigail became the woman that she was. That's possible. Uh, certainly, it, it would be a real tragedy if she chose to enter into a relationship with someone like that or maybe she entered into a relationship and then he ultimately over time deteriorated and became like this. Uh, the sad thing is, is it's a really heartbreaking thing when you have someone who's a spouse who loves God and is a person of good understanding and just this sweet, godly, you know, wonderful person and they're married to someone who is just harsh and evil and nasty and prideful and selfish and, and, and that's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult life to have to live and, and certainly we perhaps know of individuals who find themselves in that very hard spot. Uh, where they're married to a spouse who's an incredible contrast and they're living through that experience on a daily basis and that's a very hard place to be and we see today that there are those who are like Abigail's married to Nabal's and so here she is in this situation and look what happens we see how Nabal was indeed a harsh and evil man Verse 4 says, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, that it was sheep shearing time, they're celebrating, feasting. This is when the prophets are coming in. David sent 10 young men and he said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So again, not indicating that they were strangers and David and his men, we see later in this chapter, worked with his shepherds and herdsmen as they were out in the field so they weren't strangers go greet him in my name and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity peace be to you peace to your house and peace to all that you have so david sends a, a courteous blessing commending him honoring him as a successful businessman he then says verse 7 the message now i've heard that you have shears that that's the time that's come to pass your shepherds he mentions reminding nabal were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while while they were in Carmel. He says, ask your young men. In other words, they can remind you, Nabal, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So at the time this celebration and feasting is happening, it's a, it's a totally appropriate time. David's in the area and recognizes this. So he takes opportunity to make a simple request for just some food to be supplied. Certainly there was an incredible surplus when you look at the prosperity of this man and as well as the fact that sheep shearing time was a festival time. It was a, a time of feasting and generosity and compensation, as I said, was given to workers. So David, uh, in return for the protection services that they rendered to these men of their flocks, and he makes reference to it here that your men were with us in the fields the whole time they were with us your shepherds he says we didn't hurt them nothing was missing we didn't steal anything from them we were fair and David's going to say in, in the later chapters when he gets upset and he's going to say listen you know we protected all this fellow had in the wilderness nothing was missing that belonged to him and what David's referencing here again remember David himself was a shepherd before he came into this season of his life. So he understood how shepherding and taking care of herds work. When you're out in the wilderness, there was always the danger of, of bandits and thieves and, and criminals, marauders. 
who'd come and try and steal away your animals or kill one of your animals. And so there was that danger of always losing some from among your flock. So while David and his men were out in the wilderness, they were providing sort of uh, a security detail. For Nabal and this, this man who had such large flocks, David says, we, we help provide security detail. You never lost an animal. And granted, because what David and his men did, they ended up having less loss of their animals, which would in turn contribute to greater profits when it came to sheep shearing time, because maybe they might have lost 5% of their flock, but because of what David and his men did, that percentage of the flock wasn't lost because they protected and, and provided security for them. So David references this, and in a sense he's just saying, listen, in exchange for that, and what we did, a totally reasonable request, he's saying in return for that, uh, could we have some food uh, from among your celebration? Is, could you spare you know, something to provide some food for my men that are hungry? And again, a completely reasonable request. But notice he leaves the decision for the amount of compensation and reward totally up to Nabal. He doesn't demand anything. He says in verse 12, listen, I understand what time it is. So he says, uh, please let my men find favor in your eyes since we've come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand. He says, you, you can reward us or compensate us however you want. We're not demanding anything. But he just makes a, a legitimate request, which would be totally appropriate in that day culturally and should have been something that was honored out of appreciation for what David and his men had kindly done to assist them in taking care of their flocks and providing protection so that none of the animals were lost. Well, verse 9 says, When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and then they waited. So they passed along the message. They waited for a response, and this was not the response they were probably expecting. Verse 10, And they, Nabal, answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Well, if he didn't know who David was, how do he know he's the son of Jesse? Who is this guy? These, and there are, he says, many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. So he, he accuses David of being a rebel to the throne. And he takes favor with Saul, King Saul. And he, and he says, this is just another person who's broken away from being submissive to the throne. He, this guy's just a rebel. And he makes accusations against David which aren't even true and then he says verse 11 shall I and watch the pronouns here shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they are from ouch so Nabal here again showing you his pride showing you his greediness and his selfishness the nasty character of this man he totally disregards David and his men and what they've done for him kindly he just I mean you want to talk about public disrespect he just in the midst of this feast with these 10 men who come as messengers he just publicly starts insulting David and his men disregarding everything that they've done accusing David of being a rebel to the throne and he demonstrates his pride and just his selfishness in his words. You notice it's all about him. Shall I give what, what belongs to me and I and my? I mean, it's all about him. And you just see the selfishness in his heart there implying he accomplished everything. He's his own self-made man. They didn't do anything to help him out. It all belongs to him. And he's not going to share his possessions with none of these riffraff or whoever those people are out there, whoever these men are. I don't even know who these people are, David and his men. 
And he kind of gives the idea that they're just questionable individuals. Again, Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own heart. Uh, and this is a perfect picture of Nabal here. And people who behave like Nabal, unfortunately, create problems and conflict. Proverbs 18 then says in verse 6 and 7, A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. And unfortunately, people that have an attitude like Nabal's, that, that just are, are arrogant and, and selfish and, and have no sense of appreciation or compassion for other people and just disregard anything that other people have in regards to value in their life and just dishonor people and just disrespect and insult other people, not only insulting other people, but he's insulting David and his men publicly, causing public embarrassment and humiliation by his actions and his cruel words. Uh, the Bible says people like that, I mean, they're just, they're just looking for trouble. It says they're calling for their own blows and arising, you know, the, the, the conflict between people. A fool's mouth becomes his own destruction and snare. And Nabal's a picture of a proud, selfish person and really how cruel people can be. And maybe this evening, you know, we have in different ways in our lives, maybe at your job or with an interaction with a person or a family member or some situation, you, you've had a Nabal experience where someone's just totally disrespected you and treated you with just complete contempt and, you know, insulted you uh, and spoken things and accused you of things that aren't true in just a very hurtful, mean and nasty way. And that's difficult. That's hard to deal with and it arouses the, the sinful nature within us and makes it very difficult. Well, verse 12 says, David's young men hearing this, they turned on their heels and went back. They just made an about face and they just walked away and came and told all these words to David. So they realized, listen, you can't reason with a fool. I mean, this guy doesn't want to let, he's just a fool. He doesn't want to listen to anybody anyway. When somebody's going to behave like that, sometimes you just realize, again, they're publicly disgraced. They don't respond. And when someone is like a Nabal, oftentimes it is worthless to even try and talk with them and reason with them. Sometimes the best thing to do is just that. Turn around and just walk away. Again, the Bible tells us a soft answer turns away wrath. And when there is no fire, the wood goes out. And sometimes that's just the best thing to do. So they just turn around, they walk away from his antics and his insults and disrespect. They go back, they report it to David. Well, verse 13, this is where the fiasco starts. David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. It's battle time for David. Every man, put on your swords, gentlemen. Every, you can all hear him. Probably, you know, they're all putting their, uh, their armor on. Every man girded his sword and David girded his sword and about 400 men went with David and then 200, notice, stayed behind with the supplies. This seemed to be a pattern that we see in the Bible where at times some would go out to the battle, others would stay behind to guard the supplies, but they would share in the work. We'll talk about that in later chapters. But David now, 400 of his men, they're armed and ready, loaded to bear. And you have to think, what in the world is David doing here? <laughs> Now, we're going to see as the chapter goes on, David just seems to snap here, as I said. Now, here he was. He had the situation with Saul, and he overcame all that anger and hurt and offense. Remember all the stuff that Saul did to him? Now, all that happens here is Nabal just kind of in, 
He insults him. He throws an insult or two at him. He disrespects him. I mean, Saul tried to assassinate him. Saul made his life miserable. He ruined his family life, took away his job, took away his comfort zone, made him go live like a fugitive for 10 years in the desert and the wilderness. And David refrains from anger and does not kill Saul when he has an opportunity to. Now Nabal just mouths off to him and, 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 and he completely snaps. I mean, this is like he does really good in the Saul situation and now somebody just cuts him off on the highway and it's bloody murder. You know, I mean, that's kind of like the illustration here. He just totally is going to snap. He's offended at being treated in this dishonorable way. He instantly reacts in human nature and he allows his flesh to be overcome with anger. And it just all comes to the surface and he starts to plot revenge in a very severe manner. He makes the mistake of making a major overreaction here. We're going to see that David's intention, it'll tell us, is not just to go murder Nabal, but he's actually going to, he, he wants to murder every single male that's a part of Nabal's household and, and servants among all of his flocks and herds. Now, not only did Nabal not deserve to be murdered, I mean, yeah, the guy insulted you, but that's not justification to murder somebody. I mean, he didn't have a right even to murder Nabal, let alone to murder all the other innocent men and males in his household or his whole community. I mean, you would talk about a severe overreaction here and how something so small became this thing that David just lost control and he goes way overboard wanting to kill Nabal and all his servants. Uh, again, isn't it amazing, I have to say, how we can do so well in so many areas and then all of a sudden we can just be tripped up spiritually in the smallest things. Man, I can so relate to this. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyards and steal the vineyards. And so many times, the really big thing comes, right? And you, you overcome, you walk in victory, this really hard, challenging thing comes, and it's a real hard thing that would press you to want to get in the flesh, to respond wrongly, and you, wow, by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit, you overcome it, you walk in self-control, you show mercy and restraint, and you walk in the Spirit, and, and you're loving and, and patient, and then the tiniest little infraction happens. And all of a sudden, we, just the pettiest thing, we're ready to strangle somebody. And we just go through the roof. I, I mean, I, some of you are not even have to, I mean, this is my, like my life half the time. I'm thinking, wow, how, why does this happen like this? But it just goes to show us we have to always be on guard and realize that we are, like David, all vulnerable. We're all susceptible to failure. And here David just completely, his eyes aren't on the Lord. He totally gets in the flesh. He just completely gives in to his sin nature and just gets so offended and irritated over the slightest little thing here. And boy, just you know what this does? It's, just, it's a stark reminder of how much stinking pride is still there in the heart. How much of an anger issue we really do have. And we go, oh, I'm not got a pretty good anger issue because that guy that tried to assassinate me or that guy took a swing at me, I didn't punch him back. You know, and, and, and then somebody just does the tiniest thing and, and anger comes out of us like Godzilla and we're realizing, man, I guess I really do still have an anger issue. I guess I really do get pretty prideful sometimes still. Uh, and have a struggle with certain areas of my flesh. And, and David here, they all load down. They're ready to go to war. Verse 14 says, One of the young men told Abigail, that is one of Nabal's servants, goes and reports these events. 
saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. And our master reviled him. He insulted David. But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us. That is, they shielded us, the servant is saying, both night and day, they constant protection services. All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Verse 17, now therefore know and consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master and against all his household for he is such a scoundrel. That's bad when you're an employee say that about you, huh? That not one can speak to him. So one of the servants of Nabal goes to his wife Abigail and says, listen, you need to be aware of what's going on. And he reports the events that happened and he says, listen, these men didn't deserve this. They were good to us. They were helpful to us and our master just totally disrespected them. He reviled them. And you know what? That, that wasn't a good idea. I mean, this is David and his men. These men are warriors. This is like poking a dragon in the eye. And, and we're, our whole household's in jeopardy. Something needs to be done. David and his men are going to be infuriated and they may come and launch an attack against us. Remember, they were their security detail. It's like, it's like offending the Navy SEALs or something. I mean, well, you've offended the Navy SEALs. That's not a good thing here. They may come and, and kill our entire house. So they're fearful. So Abigail gets word of this, realizing that this has happened. And she says, and nobody can talk to Nabal. He's such a scoundrel. He won't even listen to anybody. So verse 18, Abigail shows her good understanding here, but she seeks to help. It says she made haste and took 200 loaves of bread. That's quite a bit. Shows you that they had plenty on hand. Two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went out under the cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. So Abigail begins to demonstrate, as I said, her heart. Notice, first of all, she shows her good understanding in that she's a problem solver. It says she made haste. She didn't waste any time. She realized, look, time is of the essence here. We are in jeopardy. What, our, what my husband has just done in his foolish activity has jeopardized the welfare of our entire household and of our entire business and all of our servants and the innocent people here. So she doesn't delay. Her good understanding says time is of the essence. She makes haste and she gets right into action. And, and she puts together a gift which probably would have been appropriate compensation for what David and his men did anyway. Almost as if like, look, this is just due compensation for them. She gathers together food, loaves of bread, and a few sheep already dressed and cared, ready to be eaten, uh, clusters of raisins and figs, and, and she sends this forth as a gift, as compensation to David and his men ahead of her to try and appease their anger and say, listen, hey, we, we want to make good here and to send this out to them as a way of an act of, of gratitude and, and to try and appease any anger or animosity. And she demonstrates that understanding by having rightly evaluated the situation having concern for people her husband didn't care about anybody he put everybody at risk but she was concerned about all of their servants and and what might happen she has a compassion for other people she also shows again unlike her husband she's generous she's kind 
She's willing to be sharing out of their prosperity and their blessing, this gracious gift of, of provision here. And she wants to resolve the problem. She's a peacemaker, not a problem starter. She wants to deal with issues and, and put out fires. And so she comes now and connects with David and his men with this gift having gone before. Now, verse 21 and 22 are sort of the parenthetical statement which take us back to David's response. Notice, now David had, that's a past tense word. David had said, this is when his men came to him, probably when he said, put on your swords. David had said, look at this, surely in vain, I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. And that was true. But the reality is, how do we respond when people pay us evil for good? What's the right response? Because sometimes, listen, sometimes we will do what's good and people will repay us with evil. Sometimes we'll do everything good and kind and right and we will get nothing but evil and mistreatment and wrong return back to us and David was justifiable in saying this man has repaid me evil for good then he says verse 22 may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light now that's a complete overreaction that's David's anger bubbling up from within him and notice what David's doing here he's trying to justify his anger here he makes these statements kind of like trying to say, like he's rationalizing, hey, because of what he did and what I did for him and repay me evil for good, you know, may God do so more to me if I don't exterminate and murder every single male among this man's company of, of herdsmen. Almost the idea is this, is this is what would be the right thing to do and if I fail, then may God help me and finish killing them all. And, and, and David here, like all of us, we try and rationalize that we're justified in our anger or our temper tantrum, or when we do something barbaric or brutal or, or harsh and we just let out our anger like volcanic eruption or venom, and, and then we try and justify it. And that's what David's trying to justify here, that somehow this, this was okay. He, he deserves this. This is appropriate here. And, and that's not the case at all. David's completely out of line, and therefore God's going to stop him before he makes a major mess. Now, when Abigail saw David, verse 23, she dismounted her donkey from her donkey quickly, fell on her face. Again, notice the total opposite, humility, submission. She fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and she fell at David's feet and saying, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, which means fool, Nabal is his name, so folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men, my Lord, whom you sent. So she here begins to offer some wise counsel now to David as she demonstrates everything opposite of her husband. She's humble. She's respectful. She shows grace and diplomacy. She's being honorable. She's being apologetic. She's apologizing for something she didn't even do on behalf of her family. And she says, please forgive us for this offense. She's trying to put water on the fire, bring resolution. And she's trying to reason with David to deter him from acting upon his anger in a foolish way. Uh, and therefore she reminds him, we're going to see, of what the Lord's already been doing in his life. And she says, look, I wasn't there. This is, my husband did this, and, and, and then she says, verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, 
as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies be like those who harm you for my Lord, be as Nabal. So she says, David, listen. She says, up to this point, Yahweh God, he has always held you back from doing something that would not be good. Again, perhaps reminding him, maybe the Lord's given her insight of how at times God had restrained David from doing things before that would have been out of line and destructive to his future. Perhaps even just a quick reminder to him from God prophetically to him, look, God held you back from just murdering Saul. That would have been wrong, David. And the Lord's held you back. And, and again, David, you're out of line here. You're in the flesh. You're heading down a path that is being motivated by your passions and your desires and your feelings and, and everything that is not of the Spirit of God that's driving you. And he says, listen, she says, the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and avenging yourself and taking matters into your hands. She's going to say, says, David, don't do it now. You haven't done it yet. Don't go there. God has kept you thus far. Verse 27, and now she says, this present which your maidservant has brought in to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So notice she's saying, David, listen, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm providing you everything you were looking for. So verse 27, as she references the, the gift that was being brought of provision and food, she offers to David the very thing he desired anyway. Again, though Nabal rudely withheld and disrespected him and insulted him and didn't give to him what he justifiably deserved, some compensation and sharing in the feast, Though Nabal did not give it to him, God still took care of the issue and provided for them in another way regardless because it came through the hand of his wife. And I think this is a good reminder here because despite what people do, God can still take care of the issue anyway. David got ripped off, right? He got robbed. He got insulted. He didn't get what he justifiably deserved, so on and so forth. And, and listen, that didn't prohibit God. God just sent it another way. He sent it through Abigail instead. And this should have further calmed David's spirit for God to remind him, David, listen, despite what has been done to you, I can find other avenues to still give you what you need. I can find other ways to still do in your life what you justifiably deserve. And, and God can work in other ways to do for us what is right, even if someone does us wrong. And, and here she reminds of that. And so verse 28, she says, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, referring to the kingdom, because my Lord fights the Lord's battles, the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. So notice she speaks to David very respectfully. She's encouraging. She's esteeming his spirit as a man. Instead of being insulted and torn down as he already was, she comes along and now she's building him back up with her words. In the world with Nabal and his interactions as a man, David had just been beaten down, insulted, disrespected. And now Abigail's doing the exact opposite. She's building him up. You belong to the Lord. You fight the Lord's battles. You're innocent in this. And, and so she's using her words to build up David respectfully, encouraging his spirit. She says, verse 29, yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, she says, he shall sling out as from a pocket of a sling. Perhaps a, a reminder there of the Goliath incident. 
Just like Goliath, she says. Listen, you're, God already took care of Goliath for you. And he gave you victory there. He'll take care of all of your enemies. He'll slay every Goliath that comes against you, David. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you, look at it, ruler over Israel. She knew David would be king and she reminds him of his calling. She says, on that day when you've been appointed ruler over Israel and God's done all for you, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So she says, David, listen, the call of God is upon your life. David, you're higher than this. David, remember who you are. David, you're not just some trivial individual. David, you are the next king of Israel. And if you follow through with this, and you took matters into your own hands and avenged yourself instead of letting God deal with the issue for you and murder Nabal and all of the... She says, then when you ascend to the throne, you're going to have a stain on your life that you're always going to deal with with regret and grief. And she says, I don't want you to have that. I don't want this to be a grief to you. And she's trying to stop David from doing something which would have been very foolish and destructive, which would have led to a lot of regret. She indicates that she knows David has a great future and she's trying to spare him from ruining his future by having a stain on his reputation or something that he's done that would cause him guilt and regret and she wants him to avoid that grief of regret. So she's trying to spare him from his foolish actions and restrain him from doing what's wrong. And what a beautiful picture of, of her stepping in and offering this kind of wonderful, good counsel to help David to deter him, to talk him off the ledge, if you would, to have someone like that. I look at this and I think, what a beautiful picture Abigail is really of even the Holy Spirit because this is what the Holy Spirit does. When we are blazing down a path towards walking in the sinful nature and we're about to do something, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he tries to restrain us and he tries to convict us and he says, listen, and he starts reminding us of who we are. Listen, you're a Christian. <laughs> Don't do this. You have a calling upon your life. Don't tarnish your reputation. You take the high road here. Don't take the low road. You, you, you're a king's kid. You're a servant of the Lord. And, and you don't want to have to have this weighing on your heart in the future. So she speaks these wonderful words of counsel. And David said to Abigail, verse 32, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you today to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. What a beautiful illustration. David's wisdom here, he shows that he has enough humility in his heart to recognize that when he's being confronted for his error and the wrong path he's on, he recognized this confrontation, this person challenging me. And keep in mind, this in culture, this was, very, this was a woman challenging a man, which was rather unusual in the culture. 
And she's not even his wife. She's just a, a woman. And, and she challenges him. She confronts him for the error and the path he's on. And David in humility says, the Lord sent you. This is the Lord speaking to me. Your advice is from the Lord. Your counsel is from the Lord. And he humbly recognized this was the Lord restraining him. That this was the Lord speaking to him through another person. And again, consider the wise and godly counsel that she gives here. Her wise and godly counsel to one person did not only benefit him, it had way far-reaching impacts. And see, sometimes we could be on both sides of this, folks. Sometimes people will come into our life and there's someone sent from the Lord to give us advice, to give us counsel, to maybe caution us if they see us heading in a wrong direction and to be that voice of the Lord to say, stop that, don't do that. That's not, that's not a good direction. You're in the flesh here. You're heading down a path that's gonna cause regret and mistakes and get you off track. And, and we in those moments need to recognize that sometimes the Lord sends people into our path to do that. And to be humble enough to, as David says here, to receive that, to acknowledge this is from the Lord and I should heed this corrective voice or heed this counsel or confrontation. And sometimes, listen, the Lord may want to use us to help someone in that way. And she doesn't come in a, in a in again, a nasty, arrogant way. She's, you know, she's very humble about it, very soft and gracious, respectful in the way she goes about it, but she pleads with him. And that should be how we do that. And we have no idea that when God leads us to do that, we may not only be helping a person, we may be helping a whole lot of people because she spared David from shedding blood of multitudes of individuals. And so sometimes when the Lord uses us in that way, we need to be open to receiving those things. So David says, I've heeded your voice. Thank you. This was the Lord sparing me from this sin. Now, Abigail says, verse 36, went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. And therefore, she told him nothing little or much until morning light. So she realized this guy's plastered. He's drunk. This is not the time to talk to him. And she just stays silent until the next day. And let me just say, that shows wisdom again. She realizes as a wise and understanding woman and wife that there are right times to talk sometimes and share. And there are other times where it's like, this is not the right time to talk about this. And so she just... Go silent with it. And she says, this is not the right occasion to address this in his life. It's not the right time to talk to him about it. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife told him these things. She reported all that had happened that he was unaware of in his arrogancy and selfishness that his heart died within him. Perhaps a reference to a stroke, it seems. And he became like a stone. And it happened about 10 days after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and so he died. So God ultimately took his life 10 days later. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who's pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Now, I want you to notice what happens. 10 days later, Nabal dies. God sovereignly allows his life to come to an end his wickedness to catch up to him, if you would. And, and God allows him to have some episode, a, a cardiac failure, and he dies, a stroke, whatever. But I want you to see here, had David taken matters into his own hands, he would have completely interrupted what God was going to take care of in a matter of a week. Right? God was going to take care of it for him in a week. 
God was going to address it in his timing and in his way. And if David had gone there, he would have completely interrupted what God had done. And then all these problems and regrets and, and, and again, things would have been on David's conscience. And the reality is, is in a sense, God was confirming to David, David, see, if you just wait and keep your hands off, I'll do it. Let me do it, though. Because people aren't going to question me because I'm God. <laughs> Let me do it. And I think it's a great lesson for our lives because sometimes we are prone to want to step in to fix something, to take revenge, to do, to do something. And, and, and God's saying, listen, if you just give me a week, a month, maybe it's a year, I don't know, but God says, I will take care of it. But David could have done something which was completely unnecessary and a week later this man was put to death anyway. And so David, verse 32 or 39, notice he's an opportunist. He sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. So he thought to himself, hey, that's a beautiful woman. She's got really great advice and she'd make a wonderful queen because I'm going to send the throne someday. So David proposes to Abigail and takes her as a wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Again, just a humble, simple woman, though obviously a very wealthy and prosperous wife she was, but yet her humility, her character. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. That's an indication of her wealth, five servants. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So she becomes David's wife, but notice the Holy Spirit, again, very honest with us to show another weakness in David's life, is that he has multiple wives. And that was never God's design. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean God endorses it or God approves of it. This was just another weakness in David's life. That David had a weakness with women as some men have a weakness with women. And, and though a godly man, uh, 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 David had a real failure in this area with wives. The tragedy is ultimately his son learned his lesson. Solomon took it to the next level. And so David here, this very interesting picture in the Bible where we see this man, a man after God's own heart, but yet still just a man with weaknesses and flaws and potential to make mistakes as we all do in our lives. You know, when the Lord works in our lives, God help us to never think that we don't have the capacity to fail and to falter. May God give us humility to remember that for all of our lives. Father, we...